Yes, it is. Welcome back. Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. I hope you all had uh, some good time off. If you celebrated Christmas, Merry Christmas um, and uh, Prospero Año. Año. Uh, Happy New Year coming up to you. We'll be here with you this week. And we are here live today, 602-508-0960. I woke up this morning to two new data regarding the government and COVID. First, the CDC today tells us Omicron constitutes 59% of COVID cases in the United States. Last week, it was 73%, a nearly 25% difference. The other datum is that As NPR puts it, quote, people who test positive for the coronavirus need to isolate themselves for only five days if they don't show symptoms, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said Monday. This cuts in half the earlier recommendation of 10 days of isolation, close quote. So in one month, the fear of Omicron went from single digit percentages to 73 percent down 25 percent. In that same month, we've now, now, after all the holiday and family and office gathering times, reduced quarantine recommendations by a factor of half. Would have been nice to know before the family, office, and holiday gatherings. This, the same month that one of the three vaccines we were all supposed to get, was taken off the recommendation list from the CDC after one year of them pushing it because of poor durability and worse adverse reactions to it. If this one month of playing pin the tail on what keeps the COVID story most prevalent or pin the tail on today's best guest isn't enough for you to stop believing a single thing this government tells you about COVID, let me try a few others. This would also be the same month Joe Biden also went to court to defend federal workplace vaccine mandates while at the end of this month, telling governors yesterday there is no federal solution. This gets solved at the state level. That's a direct quote. I'll repeat it. There is no federal solution. This gets solved at the state level. Close quote. This, of course, after a year of campaigning that he would take charge of ending the virus where the previous president would not. Still, all this month, December. Let's try one more lest we forget as we are forced to jump from lily pad to lily pad by the nonstop cascade of never-ending contradictions and changing of minds and hype. The vaccine. Omicron is now here. So the best protection is to get vaccinated. Fauci said it multiple times this month. So did Joe Biden. So did Rochelle Walensky. Quoting from Reuters just a week ago, quote, Researchers at the University of Oxford said that they found the two-dose Pfizer and AstraZeneca COVID vaccine regimens do not induce enough neutralizing antibodies against the new variant. Close quote. University of Oxford not good enough? Try this from the same article. Quote, the researchers found low to absent antibody neutralization of the variant from the regular regimens of all three vaccines. Two shots of the Moderna or Pfizer or one of the J&J, close quote. What researchers? Researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard and MIT. 
This would be in line with what was suspected at the beginning of this month when headlines were, quote, researchers don't know if vaccines are effective against Omicron, only to be bulldozed into the tripartite unanimity from Biden, Fauci and Walensky that the best protection against Omicron is the vaccine. So we have five major, I mean major changes to the main story of the last two years taking place in the course of less than 30 days. And yet there's a new set of fears and cancellations and orders, aren't there? Based on the statements of the self-same people who have turned not on dimes, but nickels on major pieces of advice, recommendations and orders, who have turned on nickels over the science they and we were told to follow. It seems the rapidity at which the government gives advice, sheathed in shame and recommendations, read as orders and mandates, and changes its mind, is increasing at the speed of mercury. The idea that anyone in this country would follow or listen to them is itself a mystery, as these madmen play political games with our public physical and mental health. Never mind as they invent new dictionaries to embrace and promote new definitions of tried and true words like vaccine, like freedom, like patriotism. I guess we have to reimagine vaccines, freedom, and patriotism while we're reimagining policing and public health all at the same time. That's a pretty tall order, but not so tall that a lot of people in this country aren't trying to reach and comply with it. Pretty soon we won't have testing kit shortages. We'll have neck brace shortages from our collective whiplash. We've been told not to wear masks and that they could actually end up doing more harm than good. That changed to wear a mask. That changed to wear two masks. That changed to if you are vaccinated, you don't need a mask. That changed to if you are vaccinated, you need to wear a mask. That changed to if you are vaccinated, you need to wear two masks. We were told we wouldn't have a vaccine in 2020. That changed when we got a vaccine in 2020, interestingly announced a week after the presidential election. We were told to wipe down and engage in heavy-duty cleanings of home, office, space, and groceries, only to be told, hmm, no need. We were told four different numbers from the same expert on the threshold needed to reach herd immunity. That expert told us he fudged the numbers deliberately. That expert still draws interviews and the highest government paycheck in the entire federal bureaucracy. We were told vaccines would keep us from getting sick or going to the hospital or dying. The CDC came clean on that and started publishing for public access information on exceptions, known as breakthrough cases. As that number climbed and the exceptions looked an awfully lot like it was more and more the rule, the CDC simply deleted that website and will not give you those numbers anymore. Doesn't trust you with the information or It is science they simply don't want you to follow. We were told to shut up and we were forced to shut up when we warned about a mental health series of consequences for school and business shutdowns. Now we've busted the banks and hospitals with the consequences of those mental health consequences from attempting attempted suicides and depression to drug overdose deaths, surpassing every record known to our history. And yet. Some people still believe and comport their lives and shame those who don't every single time and thing 
the three-headed hydra proclaims something new, something different, something internally contradictory, and always major and urgent. By the way, does anyone know if NPR has taken down the sale of their cloth face masks with their promotional emblems on them? After all, they issued a report last week that cloth masks are no longer recommended. The sale of those masks, they tell us, are no longer recommended, were still for sale as of Thursday last week. And might someone explain to me why it was xenophobic and racist, respectively Joe Biden's and Kamala Harris's words, for the previous administration to shut down travel from China, but it is not xenophobic or racist for the eight countries in Africa where the worry was that the Omicron variant, the mildest of the variants, was suspected to originate from? We can go on living like this. Many are invested in it, lest some conservatives or people from the planet called common sense be ever proven or seen as right. There are handy ways to keep them from being seen as ever being right. Call them names, write them out of the population of respected or respectable opinions, keep the people distracted by disturbing, distributing fire hoses when there's a flood, making it seem important to have fire hoses during a flood. And for goodness sakes, Do the last thing you know. Make it scary for children. Meanwhile, in regards to Omicron severity, 800% more people died from taking the government's recommendation on one of the vaccines than have died from Omicron. Should be the story of the year. But then again, so should Afghanistan. And so should inflation. And so should the evidence of the lab leak. And so should the lying about funding gain-of-function research. And so should the record high inflation. And so should the border be stories of the year. The degree to which none of those issues seems to register with more than 50% of the country is its own story. And the fact that there is a trial taking place in New York that involves a lot of very famous people, almost all liberals or Democrats, involving child sex prostitution and the cover-up of a murder is receiving less attention than cases involving people nobody ever heard of over highly questionable policing scenarios tells us a whole lot, too, doesn't it? Leo Strauss put it this way. According to our social science, we can be or become wise in all matters of secondary importance, but we have to be resigned to utter ignorance in the most important respects. We cannot have any knowledge regarding the ultimate principles of our choices, that is, regarding their soundness or unsoundness. Our ultimate principles have no other support than our arbitrary and hence blind preferences. We are then in the possession and position of beings who are sane and sober when engaged in trivial business and who gamble like madmen when confronted with serious issues. Retail sanity and wholesale madness. Don't buy the retail fruit from the poisonous orchards. I'm Seth Liebson. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. I was just kind of reading uh, Paul Mirangoff's uh, piece at the Powerline blog. It's good. Uh, it's titled The Horror. Spanish actor plays a Cuban-American. It's about being the Ricardos. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I've seen it. Um, and I don't think it gives away too terribly much uh, or ruins any of the plot or anything, really, to 
tell you what Paul wrote about it or what I'm thinking about it. Um, Being the Ricardos is a film about a week in the life of the cast of I Love Lucy. People may not realize how big of a show that is. I suppose if you're under 50, you wouldn't. If you're over 50, she may have been the most popular woman in America at, or at least most recognizable uh, at the height of the I Love Lucy show. Reruns, I don't know if they're still playing, but I know they were certainly playing uh, through my childhood. It's a, it's a film about a week in the life of the cast of I Love Lucy with so many sporting events canceled due to the Wuhan coronavirus, Paul puts it. He watched it on Amazon uh, Prime last week and it centers around the marital problems of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz as well as equally the turmoil stemming from reports that Lucille Ball once registered to vote as a communist. There's also a heavy dose of feminism which is natural in a film about female television pioneers in the 1950s. I'll be honest, I didn't pick that up. I didn't pick that third thing up. Maybe I'm I'm uh I don't know. I, I just didn't. I picked up the communism part. One of the – let me depart from what Paul's point was uh, in a second, for a second. One of the interesting things about the display and portrayal of anti-communist thought at the height of the I Love Lucy show in the 1950s is once it was reported that Lucille Ball had once registered as a communist – it was um, it was a question as to whether the show could even go on. That's how seriously we took communism in this country once upon a time. Some would argue too seriously. Some would argue we overreached. This is everything that's tied up, obviously, in things known as McCarthyism. But there's a dramatic irony to it that we'll get to in a moment. And Paul is very good about pointing it out. He says the anti-anti-communism, put your head around that for a moment, the anti-anti-communism, okay, so those who were against punishing, going after, or worrying about communists in America, the anti-anti-communism, he writes, is another matter for this show. Seventy years after the fact, the same people who wanted an investigation of possible Russian influence in the outer reaches of social media, are still incensed that at the outset of the Cold War, Congress investigated with reasonable cause possible Soviet influence in America, the utterly dominant force in American culture at the time, whether it was in Hollywood or whether it was in government. Kind of an interesting point that... And also the deployment of the same tactics. What tactics? Blacklists, censoring, cancel culture. Same people. Kind of interesting. About communism, they worry not. About tried and true conservatism, they're willing to go full-blown Joseph McCarthy on you. Um, The House Committee... On Un-American Activities, which is where Richard Nixon became famous, takes a shot or two in the, um, in the, in the, in the show, in the movie, but not the main rap. It had already, believe it or not, cleared Lucille Ball. Um, spoiler alert, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover comes in to the film, by the way, fictionally, 
fictitiously. I looked it up. It's good drama, but it didn't happen. Um, that's okay. Furthermore, communism isn't romanticized. In fact, the communists are villains in being the Ricardos. Yet the Ball character, the Lucille Ball character, excuses the communism of her American mentor. It was her, was it her uncle or grandfather? And suggests at the time she registered as a communist, it was merely because she cared about poor people. And it didn't dawn on her to be much different than registering as a Democrat or a Republican. This is where I think Amazon Prime's being the Ricardos gets really interesting. Because Desi Arnaz, played by Javier Bardem, is having none of it. Is having none of it. And he goes off on his wife, Lucille Ball, for thinking communism wasn't a big deal. And he does a really good job of it. I'm trying to start a meme on Twitter. You checked the wrong box. It comes from a uh, speech, an angry speech, Desi Arnaz Javier Bardem gives to Lucille Ball. And, um, and it's, it's powerful and it's passionate. And Javier Bardem did a fantastic job in this. If you just like acting, he did a great job. That, however, is where the problems really begin. Can anyone predict, Bill, would you predict what the problem may be? You may not know enough about Javier Bardem to know what the problems may be. Fair enough. Fair enough. The problem is, in being the Ricardos, Javier Bardem plays Desi Arnaz. Arnaz, hmm, he's Cuban. Javier Bardem, he ain't. He's from Spain. He has no links to Cuba and isn't even considered a Latino in today's identity politics. And therein begin the problems in Hollywood. We'll get to those in just a few moments. What a shame that this is what's become of acting in Hollywood. In fact, it may have a whole new definition in that new dictionary we discussed in my monologue for what an actor is. Maybe they shouldn't play people they aren't. Maybe that's not the actor's job. I kind of thought it was. Maybe it ain't. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, and welcome back to John Dombrowski. He is, of course, the person who gives us our culture and economy update at this time every day. He is also the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website and the host of his own radio show right here on 960 AM every Saturday morning at 7 the Word on Wealth. Hello, John. Good afternoon, Seth. How are you, sir? Fabulous. Welcome Thank you. back. A few Thank days you. off here. Yes, appreciate and, it. And uh, you betcha. And back with a uh, back with a with a, a force. It looks like. Yes. I don't know if it's Gale Force, but a good force. Well, you know, people out there may have heard of something called the Santa Claus Rally. Now we all know Santa Claus. Of course, he's probably exhausted right now. <laughs> but it seems like uh, something called the Santa Claus Rally. And then this occurs uh, usually the week between Christmas and New Year. Okay. And also a couple of days after New Year. 
And what we're finding is is that uh, oftentimes that period of time the markets do seem to have a nice little push forward and it is occurring again this year as well and it was coined back the Santa Claus rally by uh, an analyst back in 19 in the 70s sometime okay. in the 70s okay. who noticed a few anomalies that would occur during uh, this time of the year when he was charting and looking back on history and of course as we know history is not a guarantee right it's going to repeat itself but um, the percentages are there, and it's it's about 67 to 70 percent of the time the market does rally in that final week of December uh, into the new year. So here we go. We're seeing a nice rally for the markets right now, and this is the best in the past 20 years of rallies. Oh, wow. So if we, we have to go all the way back to the year of 2000, and so we're seeing a nice bounce in the markets, the S&P 500 hitting an all-time high yesterday again. Uh, And believe it or not, Seth, I think it's over 60 times, close to 70 times in the year of 2021 that the S&P 500 has hit an all-time high. Good good reporting. And, And you know what it dawns on me just a little bit, John? It almost seems like every economic term we use now was coined in the 70s. Mm. You have the Santa Claus effect. I'm thinking mm-hmm. misery index. I'm mm-hmm. thinking stagflation. I'm thinking yeah. inflation, which of course was around, but you know became whip inflation now. Remember that was Jerry Ford. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting, isn't it, uh, to think about some of this uh, uh, crisis of confidence, malaise, all this stuff oh, that came out of the 70s, Out of the 70s, right? because this is what we're now thinking yeah. about, right? Yeah, yeah. As we, as we look at the inflationary uh, pressures we're feeling right now, we those of us who are old enough, we remember that. Yeah. And that is probably the closest to uh, this current scenario would be going back to the late 70s uh, at the year end, you know, of the Carter yeah. uh, times. And then ultimately when um, uh, Reagan came into office is when we started to see the recovery. Now, what's interesting, though, Seth, is if we think about what is the biggest factor that is totally different than we saw back then. Yeah. And that is interest rates. Uh, I was going to say there's a focus on the Fed that came about w- that we didn't used to have in the early 80s, too, right? And right. now we're doing it again, aren't we? Right. Yeah. Now, we we did have uh, at the time, I think it was uh, – uh, who was it at the time? Paul was Volcker. Gre- yeah, I think it was Greenspan. That, and then Volcker took over for Greenspan, right? Okay. And uh, that's when everything changed, when Volcker got in. And then all of a sudden is when we started to see – or was it the other way around? I, I, I think it was Volcker, Volcker who strangled yeah. the... Uh, Volcker, yeah, yeah, right, Volcker right, who's right, the one who actually right. created... Right. right the, the, the Carter challenges. appointed Volcker, Reagan reappointed him. That's my yeah. memory. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but that's when it all started. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I think for us, at least right now, I think it was a good idea that uh, the current administration and President Biden did keep into place uh, Chairman Powell. I think that was a good... Uh, choice for right now, just to keep uh, a little bit of continuity. But there are those out there who are believing, Seth, that this could be uh, another, you know, late 70s type of scenario yeah. that, we're, that we're teeing up for. Yeah, I can imagine. We're having the discussions we thought we would never have to yeah. have again about inflation, about gasoline prices and energy, aren't we? Yeah, and, and I want to, you know, everyone out there who's listening and who's concerned about this, you have every right to concern, be concerned about it. Uh, uh, really take a close look at your portfolios. Understand the, the uh, time horizon that you have for your investments. That's going to be critical because there's going to be volatility coming up in 2022, Seth. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Be prepared for it. Uh, Get comfortable with it because it's going to happen. 
Uh, and you don't want to miss out on, on some opportunity for growth. So don't let it, that fear index, right? Don't let that fear you uh, over, you know, overcome any type of Oh, edu- let's use that. Let's decisions. make that a thing. Yeah. Let's talk about the fear index from here on out. I like that, John. Good work. You yeah, got it. I bet. All right, for everyone out there, Securities and Advisory Services offer the Client One Securities LLC, a member of Fenrin Tippic and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. No time really to get in to see me before the end of the year, but there's time next year. Make sure you put that on your to-do list for 2022 to see me. You're taking appointments and reservations. You betcha. Hey, John, thank you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Appreciate it. Bless you. The bass of Stanley Clark, the guitar of Lee Rittenauer. I don't think you can have better talent than that right there. Let me return to what my friend Paul Mirangoff at Powerline was saying or analyzing with regard to being the Ricardos and the uh, dust-up that Javier Bardem, who is from Spain, is playing Ricky, uh, is playing Desi Arnaz, who is from Cuba. And how, because he isn't considered a Latino, this has a lot of the Hollywood woke upset. As one reviewer put it, I'm just here to remind Hollywood that Desi Arnaz was Cuban-American, so Latino, and Javier Bardem is Hispanic with no Latino roots. And as much as I adore Javier Bardem, stop casting Spaniards in Latino roles. Paul asks, why? Here's another reviewer. A lot of people in Spain are bothered if others confuse them for Latin Americans because Spaniards see Latinos as people of color and they don't want to be associated with that. What bothers me is not being considered a person of color, but that people ignore that Spain was a colonizing country. It erases that history. What are we supposed to put a big C on everyone from Spain, no matter what they do, that their country, collective responsibility that their country once engaged in colonization? So casting a Spaniard as a Cuban American erases Spain's colonial history is what we're uh, to take away. Uh, Yolanda Machado, another reviewer, says that the film wasn't written by the funny, creative, and fierce Cuban-American. In other news, a new version of Macbeth by one of the Coen brothers features Denzel Washington in the title, title role. And the funny thing is, he doesn't look Scottish. I understand the distinction. There are plenty of roles for whites, whereas some Latinos believe that Latino actors aren't getting enough roles. But the only obligation of an artist or a film director is to present the best work he can. If he believes that a Spaniard will deliver the best performance of Desi Arnaz, the Spaniard should be cast as Arnaz. It's not the film director's job to atone for Spanish colonialism or to compensate for other cases in which Latino actors may have been best for a role, but were passed over. Let me point out, almost everyone who has seen this, being the Ricardos, believes Javier Bardem should get an award for it. The acting is stunning. Barden may be the only adult here. He said, I'm an actor, and that's what I do for a living trying to be people that I'm not. He went on. What do we do with Marlon Brando playing Vito Corleone? What do we do with Margaret Thatcher played by Meryl Streep? Daniel Day-Lewis playing Lincoln. Why does this conversation happen with people 
with accents. Where is that conversation with English-speaking people doing things like the last duel where they were supposed to be French people in the Middle Ages? That's fine, but me? Spanish accent? Being Cuban? I can't do this? He concluded by saying, if we want to open the can of worms, let's open it for everyone. I suppose that's right. And then, of course, we're done with the play as well as the movie Hamilton, aren't we? Think about it. We are. It's funny what Hollywood, um, what Hollywood will be serious about and what Hollywood won't be serious about. I, this is as long as we're on this race thing for a second. Um, I don't know if you caught the latest from uh, Kamala Harris. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Yeah, I think I can. Maybe I can't. Can I not do it? I can't do it. Can I? No. She's um, she's doing a speech on Kwanzaa, and uh, she t- tweets, Our Kwanzaa celebrations are one of my favorite childhood memories. The whole family would gather around across multiple generations, and we'd tell stories and light the candles. Whether you're celebrating this year with those you live with or over Zoom, happy Kwanzaa. Let me begin it again. Our Kwanzaa celebrations are one of my favorite childhood memories. The whole family would gather around across multiple generations, and we'd tell stories and light candles. Across many generations, she was born about two years before Kwanzaa was invented. I don't know how it was celebrated. across. As someone said, it sounds cute. Show us the pictures. I'm guessing there are none. One of the interesting things to me about Kwanzaa is no one in Africa has heard of it uh, because it was invented here by uh, an American uh, who changed his name, and uh, that's about the most innocent thing he did. You want to look it up? I don't want to get into it, but um, let's just say uh, a very ugly criminal history. Very ugly criminal history uh, from the founder. But one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is I didn't notice much talk about it when Obama was president, during the Obama presidency. And I'm not alone. Whenever I've raised that, people say, yeah, it kind of faded away, didn't it? kind of faded away. And I took two things from that. One was we still kind of thought, as Larry Elder has taught better than anyone else going through the recent history, that the election of Barack Obama was a watershed movement against racial grievance in this country and against purported racism in this country. Um, That was one thing. The other thing is Obama was just a lot smarter, just a lot smarter than your average Kamala Harris. So, for example, I was just I was just looking up. Did did Obama ever cut videos? Well, he did put out statements on Kwanzaa. And you know what he did in those statements? It's a little interesting. Uh, In those statements about Kwanzaa, he said things like the principles of Kwanzaa reflect America's most cherished values. He tied it to an American thing because it was invented in America. He didn't make this phony notion that they were bringing in some thousands-year-old or hundreds-year-old African celebration. I learned this the hard way. I learned about this the hard way uh, in law school. 
and I was at a very woke law school, uh, maybe the wokest. Um, and I remember saying to an African-American friend, Happy Kwanzaa, and he said, I'm a Christian. You can wish me Merry Christmas. And I never did it again. I never wished anyone it again. And I never really heard about it much except a little bit on television and in certainly the card stores around this time of year. I don't know why Kamala Harris is engaging in this. Um, and I suppose it's a little bit tied to these rumors. They're not rumors. They've been reported. She just won't verify them, that her staff have been saying that she's treated as poorly as she is in the polling numbers because of her race. It's racism that has her poll numbers and her popularity so low. It's interesting when you wrap yourself in the mantle of race when things aren't going well. We've talked about that here before. It's what you kind of have to expect when you wrap yourself in in the cover of race, in the sheath of race, as a positive for yourself. She will be a role model for so many women because of why? Her race. Well, what happens when she fails? Is that the responsibility of her race? It's a problem. Yeah, I got the Kamala Harris audio working. Uh, you can get the sense of it if you want uh, on Twitter or on her feed about wishing everyone a happy Kwanzaa and telling the stories about how multiple generations uh, would uh, celebrate it in her household growing up. I, I, I simply don't believe it, uh, given the timeline. I just don't believe multiple generations in her house over the course of what might be her childhood within the five years of the invention of this thing and it taking hold in American culture that she was doing it. I think it's another lie. But, yeah, the story it's going around, and you can see it written up, is that Harris is uh, blaming her low performance numbers and poll numbers and popularity on racism. And this presents a really difficult problem in the racial grievance politics that we live in. It asks the question, first of all, why Joe Biden chose her as a running mate in the first place? Was it something she said? Was it something she did? Um, can anyone tell me anything she did in her tenure in the Senate or as California's attorney general, you will come up with very little, if anything. So it must have been something else. California, the state she represented, was that an important thing for Joe Biden to make sure would be in his column? Given all known history, Joe Biden could have chosen Bernie Sanders as a running mate as much as he could have chosen Cindy McCain or, for that matter, Ron DeSantis, and he would have won California. Just pick someone. He would have won California without Kamala Harris, just as Barack Obama could win California, irrespective of Joe Biden being his running mate, as much as Hillary Clinton could win California, irrespective of whoever ran with her for the presidency in 2016. Does anyone even remember who Hillary Clinton's running mate was? It doesn't matter. So Joe Biden obviously chose Kamala Harris for some other reason. And the headlines after the election give the hint. Kamala Harris 
serving as role model for women, Kamala Harris, role model and reminder of how far we still have to go. Kamala Harris, the ultimate role model for young minority women. Kamala Harris has become a role model for minorities and women. I could go on and on and on. Those are, as I've once said before on this, just the first results over two million stories on social and legacy media about how Kamala Harris would be or uh, was a role model for women and minorities, constituting both. And we're tempted to let this kind of just pass. But when you get there and all of your good decency and excellence is attributed to who you are as a person of a certain race or who you are as a person of a certain gender, if that's what is causing the celebration, what happens when you don't do well? What happens when you fail? What are we supposed to say about that? Well, her idea is to say it's because of racism. It was her race that got her this job, but it's the racism against her that is criticizing her for the job she's doing. It's quite a syllogism, isn't it? Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. 